Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 320 with my guest, uh, Maya Akiva. Today's episode is sponsored by Probimune. Did you know that up to 80% of your immune system relies on a healthy gut? Well, that's why the people at Young Health developed Probimune, a liquid probiotic that promotes intestinal health with a unique blend of bacteria not found in 99% of other probiotics. It's easy to use, easy to travel with, and easy to store. No refrigeration required. I can vouch for that. I take it with me when I travel. And now you guys can get your first bottle of Probimune free when you sign up for automated delivery. All you pay is $6.75 for shipping and handling. Just go to P-R-O-B-I-M-U-N-E dot com and use the promo code MENTAL at checkout. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Mental Illness Happy Hour. Uh, Sometimes people call it the Mental Health Happy Hour, and um, that makes me shake my fist at the sky. And so I just, right now, just made me shake my own fist at the sky, at myself. I don't know, I'm very confused. This show is called The Mental Illness Happy Hour. Uh, it's a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, it's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room filled with fun and sadness. <laughs> Uh, the website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go check it out. Fill out uh, one of our anonymous surveys. Maybe we'll read your survey on the show. Uh, all kinds of uh, good things you can you can do on the website. You can read blogs, guest blogs, browse the forum, um, support the show financially, um, see lists of listeners' favorite episodes uh, from certain years. In fact, I've got one. For this year, um, or for uh, last year, for 2016, uh, the number 
10 most popular among the listeners was the episode um, with uh, Katie Hirschberg, Letter to My Suicidal 16-Year-Old Self. Uh, number nine was relig- Religious Abuse with Hillary A. Number eight was NHL legend Theo Fleury. Uh, number seven was Sex Crime Detective Don Howell. Uh, number six was Murray Valeriano, Live at L.A. Podfest. Number five was Glamorously Dying with Nikki DuBose. Number four was Melanie R. with uh, DID, a.k.a. Multiple Personality Disorder. Number three was Mara Wilson. Number two was Dr. Janice Webb on emotional neglect. And number one was ex-CHP officer Kevin Briggs. Thank you guys for uh, voting on those. And voting is still open, so uh, maybe those numbers will change. Stay tuned. This is very exciting. I'm creating drama. I'm creating drama. This is like my own reality show. I'm creating drama where there is none. Um... This show is, uh, as I've mentioned before, is sponsored by uh, BetterHelp.com. They provide online therapy. They provided me with an online therapist, and I give you updates every week and um, love my therapist. Um, uh, we, she, she is really helping me with my boundary issues, and uh, we're doing some dream work together, which... Um, I don't know. I'd, I'd heard about it a lot, and so I asked her if we could we could try doing it, some of it. So I'm writing some of my dreams down, but the, I'm not going to share my dreams with you guys because the only thing more boring than listening to somebody describe their round of golf is listening to somebody tell you their dream. So um, I'm not going to voice that on you. But one of the things she is asking me to do is to notice... Um, how I feel when my boundaries are clean with somebody. And, and I'm talking about conversational boundaries. I'm not talking about physical boundaries. I'm, I like to think I'm pretty good with, with physical boundaries. But sometimes I just dive headlong into a conversation um, and uh, just go too, uh, too much information too quickly. And I know it's related to you know, my addictions and ugh, trauma, whatever stuff you want to talk about. Fantasy. Uh, by the way, this is a great episode uh, for talking about the um, power of fantasy. Uh, and so as I'm writing these things down, it's really becoming clear to me how when I'm in a conversation, when I'm in my addiction and when I'm not. Um, here's Here's some signs that... I'm not in my addiction when I'm in a conversation with somebody. Um, I feel patient. Um, I respect boundaries. I'm aware of them. Uh, I don't have a set goal for where the conversation should go. Um, um, I see the person instead of the um, imagined scenario that I want uh, the conversation to go to, uh, etc. Um and the ways that I know when I'm in my addiction is I feel adrenaline. Um, I begin to um, uh, I begin to fear that I am um, how do I 
fear that I am bad or wrong uh, because I think consciously I also kind of know that I'm pushing boundaries because I'm, I'm looking to escape my whatever my issue is at the moment, be it pain, fear, loneliness, sadness, guilt, regret, whatever. Um, and that adrenaline rush is one of the things that when I'm in my addiction, I seek. And the other thing, when I'm really into my addictions, be it any addiction, is that I lose my perspective of myself, others, and the situation that I'm that I'm in. And there's a lot more that I that, that I've written down, but um, I say all that to say that I um, I'm making some headway. I feel like it's the um, you know, they, there's a saying in recovery that you're peeling the layers of the onion. I really feel like, um, like I'm doing that, like, um, like I'm getting to new things and getting better at at dealing with issues as I kind of get past ones um, under control or find peace with or or, or whatever it may be. But um, I love BetterHelp dot com. Um, you can go there, uh, complete a questionnaire, and get matched with the BetterHelp.com counselor and experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you. Uh, you got to be over 18, and um, I love it. I, uh, I do video uh, camera to camera with my uh, therapist once a week. Uh, we could uh, check in with each other more <clears throat> if, uh, if I wanted to. She'll occasionally send me uh, a message saying, hey, you know, how about uh, um, think about this for next week's uh, session? And that was the list that I just uh, that I just read you. But um, I love it. Can't say enough good things about it. I want to read you. An awfulsome moment. This is filled out by my What a Beautiful Fucking Day. And she writes um, in parentheses, this one is rather dark, Paul. As if that's ever put me off anything. My new job has been incredibly stressful at times, especially as my anxiety, uh, social anxiety, loves to act up around my coworkers. I've spent a number of times crying in a bathroom stall beating myself up over the belief that I'll never get this job right and I'll always be an awkward annoyance to my peers. I carry a few sharp instruments during work with which to do my job, including an X-Acto knife. Unfortunately, I have a history of self-abuse and at times the knife has been all too handy. During During lunch one day, I brought out an orange and took the knife out of my pocket to help start the peel. A co-worker sitting with me, over whom I've Uh, I have a throbbing crush, jokingly said, don't do it, as in slicing my wrists. Funny, he seems to like using that joke every time he sees me take out the knife. And then as I began to cut into the orange, he says, are you sure you want to use that? You don't know where it's been. I just looked at him, smiled, and said nothing. I'm so scared of being alive and so scared of dying. I was so, so lonely, but I couldn't bear being around people, and it hurt. I've just been, like, very interested in dicks. I don't know how to let loose and just be. All my alters have different handwriting and different... Extremely anxious. Affects. I am most turned on when I am in fear. My first thought was I'm about to die. Stomach. 
clutching despair. Ocean of sadness. I came out over the phone to them. I put myself on the Atkins diet in fourth grade. They told me I was wrong. The secrecy is what kills us. And I just sat there and cried on his shoulder. And it was the first time I ever felt safe, like a weight lifted off of me. In order to get rid of your anger, you have to learn how to cry. I started liking myself for the first time. I'm afraid that people are only nice to me because they're afraid I'll kill myself if they're not. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> that is fantastic. <laughs> I'm here with uh, Maya, who is somebody that I've known for um, a while, a, a couple of years, and um, uh, our paths cross in support groups. And uh, I've just always enjoyed our, our, our conversations because you're a very... Um, open person about your struggles and your self-loathing and I think maybe that's something that we we both uh, certainly share and when you shared with me that you um, listened to the podcast I was like well let's let's get you on as a as a guest uh, I just want to cover some broad strokes about stuff that you um, deal with and and on paper who you are you're a lesbian you were raised in Israel you moved here um, when you were in your 20s uh, to, to Los Angeles, you saw Ellen. Yes. That helped you to come out and realize you were a lesbian. Um, but the real focus of why I want to talk to you, um, in addition to your low self-esteem and struggling um, to connect with people, um, is fantasy. Mm-hmm. And that that is a drug to you. Yep, that is definitely a subject I can talk about. Let's let's talk about that. Um, oh my God, you know, my and and the difference between like imagination is a healthy thing for people to have, and fantasy is certainly something that everybody does. But we're talking about fantasy as an escape, as a coping mechanism, in a way that distances us from from people. Yes. When, so when we say that to. Um. Yeah, you know, when I listen to the podcast, people talk about, you know, their early journey. And I, when I was kind of thinking about what should I talk about, you know, try not to be too controlling, but uh, what should I talk about? You know, my, my journey with fantasy or with, or with fantasy for survival, we'll call it, because that's what it is, um, started uh, the minute I came into Earth because I had uh, a birth trauma that... Um, um, when I went, when I discovered it, I went to an NLP therapist, What's which that? is, um, neural linguistic programming. It's what Tony Robbins hmm. practice and it's neuro linguistic programming. Yeah. Okay. It's a way of therapy. And she helped me discover this birth trauma because it's a story I've heard all my life, but I didn't realize the emotional impact that it had on me. But basically, um, my mother had, a um, a pregnancy poison, and I was born very tiny, like dangerously tiny. What do you mean when you say a pregnancy poison? She uh, got poison in, in her, her body. blood. Something in oh, her okay. blood. So I, I was born in nine months, but I was like really tiny. Like they can hold me at the palm of their head. That's what they were telling wow. me. Wow. Yeah. Like um, that's a favorite family story. Here's a coconut in my hand. That's how big you are. Um, so I heard the story for years. Um, 
And then I went to the therapist and I told her the story and she like her jaw drop and she looked at me and she's like, oh my God, you have no idea what you went through as a baby. And basically what happened is back then in 1973 um, in, in Israel, um, because I was born so tiny, what they did is I got out of my mother's womb. They took me. They wouldn't even let my mother touch me, see me, talk to me. They put me in an incubator. They drove me an hour away to another hospital, and they kept me there for two months. And after two months, my mother came and took me. So you missed all of that attachment with your mom in the, in the key time when a baby is supposed to be smelling the mother and breastfeeding and being held and feeling that electricity. Everything. I missed everything, which I think explained the... I'm say, I'm telling it to you because I think that was the beginning of my fantasy, uh, uh, you know, issues and checking out and, and using it because um, I think that that created such... Um, I think it's created such trauma that as I became older and became an infant and a kid, I had that thing in me and I didn't know how to cope with other human beings. Um, and it was a traumatic event that happened in our family that nobody ever talked about. I actually talked to my mother about it finally after uh, the therapist. And the therapist, by the way, she did like... Um, um, like a meditation to me to get me back to that place. And that place brought up in me the same feelings I have about romantic relationships and about things. So that really? started at, that started at minute one. And she said that any any according to her, any baby that was in an incubator or that had some kind of disconnected um will be an addict. Like that's like the beginning of addiction because right away um they're craving something deeply. They crave yeah, something that they can't have. All and, babies or just a lot of babies? Um in incubator babies. Like pe babies that are like torn away from their parents. And mm. I did some research about it and nowadays even if you have a birth, something goes wrong with the birth, they always put you on your mothers and they always let the mother have the connection with you like they learned. But Back then, now I mean, and you don't necessarily mean because you don't struggle with substance uh, abuse. Your your drug is fantasy yes. and um, love addiction, uh, yes. as, as it were, and food. You struggle with food yes. as well. Um, so it's important to make that distinction that you know because somebody could their thing could be workaholism or yes. codependence or they could be a rageaholic where they're addicted to control and, and, and anger. Yes. A part of my journey of recovery and addiction and the, and the humbleness of it is really realizing that it doesn't really matter that the only the point is to check out and not be here. Like mm -hmm. that's the point. Um, and to not this, feel the emptiness. Yeah, to not feel the pain, the emptiness, the low self esteem, the no value. Um, and again, the reason I'm telling this story because I think it's so ingrained in me. Like it's from day one, I felt abandoned. Now the trick is that that wasn't the reality. My mother was so devastated and she went, she drove every day an hour to watch me in the hospital. And, but my perception was that I was in danger. And when I got sober, I started having, um, when you do, when you say sober, what, what, what do you mean? Um, what were you getting sober from? Sober from love addiction okay, and fantasy addiction. Okay. Um, and, um, I started having those 
emotional flashbacks. Like I didn't know what they were, but I would I would wake up or I would walk around during the day and I would feel in danger. But in danger, like in danger for my life, in danger for my well-being, danger for my uh, I don't know, for for from humanity for my being a human being and I didn't know what was going on and then I I started I started researching it and I I came across this article about post traumatic stress complex I don't know if you ever heard about it mm-hmm. um is that different than Post-traumatic stress disorder? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, it's different in the way that post-traumatic stress disorder is about a single event that happened to you. Post-traumatic stress complex is about a period of time that oh. you were. Um, it's more uh, applied for prisoners of war and people in cults and, mm-hmm. and all of that and for abusive children. Um, and that... Abused children. Abused children. Yeah. Children were okay. abused for a long period of time. Gotcha. And emotionally abused too. It doesn't. I'm not talking about physical abuse. And that um, the stuff that I was feeling. Look, nobody ever like diagnosed me or or told mm. me that's what happened. But I I I, I know that to, for me that's the truth. Is that I think that this feeling that came up when I got sober was from that time being in, in the incubator and feeling danger for my life because it has. No rhyme or reason that danger that I feel. I'm a grown up. I can take mm-hmm. care of myself. I, you know, everything is okay. Um, and it f- it feels like infant. Like when I think about it, it's like that's what a baby in an incubator, not knowing what's going on, thinking they're in danger for their lives, would feel. And I would imagine, uh, you, you know, even though clearly as an infant you didn't know. Well, I was born too small, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. But just the lack of having the mother there would set mm-hmm. off alarm bells that you're not getting something genetically that you that you need uh, in there. When when I was uh, two weeks old, I, the my small intestine um, was too small. The, the, the valve um, that goes from your stomach to your small intestine, mine was too small, and so I couldn't digest anything. So everything I was eating, I was throwing up. So the first two weeks of my life, I was basically oh my starving. And so they had to put me in the hospital, and they had to do this surgery, and I'd never really thought about it. And then I got into therapy, and a therapist said, oh, that's incredibly traumatic, because you were away from your mom, you were physically starving. And, and so we did some EMDR work on it, and mm-hmm. I began to to kind of think about oh yeah that that feeling of like like a hole in my chest um i can feel that i can feel that that feeling and um one of the things that i struggle with to this day is if i don't know where and when i'm going to eat and i mm. begin to get hungry i panic mm. i have to know where my food is going to come from. And mm-hmm. it's, I like sometimes when I'm hungry, I can't even converse with people. I think some people, when they hear things like you're talking about and I'm talking about, they're like, oh, they're just looking for a reason to feel sorry for themselves. They're just, they're, you know, one of those people that look on the internet and they go, yes, that explains mm-hmm. everything for me. I'm going to go with that. But I want to say this is, this is a real thing. Thank you. And actually, I'm so glad we're talking about it because I feel like, um, First of all, it's so real to me. Like I can, like the experience cannot be taken away. It's it's so real, and um, I feel like um, you know when 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 a kid is sexually abused, which is a horrible thing by itself. I'm not diminishing anything from it. 
Um, again, it's a very acceptable quote-unquote thing by society. Like, you know you're going to have trauma and you know you're going to have problem with relationships and you know, and you go to a therapist and you tell them that right away. But having um, infant, emotional infant trauma is not something that is known and I think so many people don't even either don't even know their stories or heard like some kind of story and don't realize the effect and if you read any I'm not a psychologist but I've done a lot of research for myself any childhood development um, research or understanding will tell you that um, it actually goes like the opposite the, our, our sponge learning thing from day one we are the most sponge ever mm. and as we get older we we get less and less and less sponge so the earlier the trauma is the more effect it will ever oh that makes sense that you know sense. that's why like when you born like again from what i read from your from when you born the effect of of what you sponge in is so big that it's energetically. It doesn't even have to be said to you. That's why, like, kids learn how to... How, how do babies learn how to do things? Nobody teaches them. It's like they they look, they can look at something and, and, and do it, and they, can, they get it on an energetic level. And as the older we get, the less and less it is. And I think by the time we, ate, we eat age seven, it really starts slowing down. That's what they say, you know, to teach people to teach babies language. Like if you if you talk to a, a one-year-old with three languages, they will know three languages. If you talk to an 80-year-old with three languages, uh, they will take them much longer to, ca to catch up. So I'm so glad we're talking about it because to me, that was, it explains a lot of things that's going on in my life and a lot of experience that I have and a lot of like reactions that I get like, rejection which is hard for everybody you know like mm -hmm. i'm not thinking i'm special or anything like that but there's moments where rejection to me feels like danger like whenever something feels to me like danger i now learn that it must do, it must be something to do with my trauma as an infant because nobody's in that like there is no danger except god forbid physical so danger it, it, for you it goes beyond pain and hurt it's like your very existence feels threatened. It's post-traumatic stress. It's it is. It's um yeah. It's post-traumatic stress. Um, and is, is it that you feel like you're going to die? You're going to disappear, or is it just a general panicky fear that you can't you can't necessarily articulate what it is that you're afraid of? It's feeling of danger. It's it's. I know it's hard to explain because it but doesn't. But you can't make say sense. what you can't say what specific danger it is that you're imagining. It's just it's, your body is reacting the way you would if somebody were mugging you. It's in um, um, existential danger. Like it's it's like I'm in danger. Now you look around and you go like, "There's nothing dangerous around me," but your body feels like like in danger like the same way your body feel good when you have an orgasm like your body feels like my like my whole being feels in danger um and it doesn't make sense and it's the weirdest thing ever um and i'm so glad google is around because i don't know what i would do 20 years ago if that would happen to me and i couldn't google it and kind of research i probably guess i'll go to the library and, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> and read about it um so yeah, so I'm glad we're talking about it because it is a big part of, of my healing journey and my recovery. And so um, I would imagine 
of course you're going to be addicted to fantasy because yes. you need to escape that body that when you are afraid, you're going to be rejected. Um, let's go to a place. Let's go to the happy place in our head where... Yes, well, that was my starting point, all right? So right away, you know, you know, there, was, there were going to be some issues. Uh, but then, um, then it goes, you know, to the more regular stuff where my parents were in their early 20s, you know, when they had me, and they obviously did not know what they're doing, and they have their own issues, and, um, and um, they weren't ready to have kids. And... I don't want to get into their stuff because that's their stuff, mm -hmm. but they definitely, um, I was definitely, there was definitely emotional problems in the, you know, in the household. Um, lack of emotion or in too intensive emotion? Lack of emotion. Okay. So, um, everything was external. So everything was, um, valued external and everything, um, is suppose yeah, everything is about success and good, success and good. Mm -hmm. So bad, not. I guess there's nothing really bad, but but failing or not doing something right. It was, was about achievement was and that, yes. and and financial success, or any success, any, any success. success you can show other people. You know, I see, which okay. is something very common in Israel. I mean, something very common in Western mm -hmm. civilization, but definitely mm -hmm. in Israel. So. Um, so even in my childhood, so I think that that's, I think that um, I realized very, very quickly in my childhood. I mean, I, ca I can only imagine, like, you know, I, I can't remember consciously, but um, that I realized very quickly that um, I feel a lot of pain and I'm not getting loved and I need to check out because I can't survive this, you know. I mean, again, I don't think it was consciously, but I think like I wasn't able to survive it as a kid. So, um, and you know, it's so hard to say because like I can see if somebody knows me or my family and they will listen to it, they, they won't understand what I was talking about. But this is like my emotional experience in mm -hmm. my family. And it's not that my parents did anything wrong. Um, they were wonderful. Like they love me, I know dearly, and they gave me, anything I ever wanted, really. I was not, I would not be able to, to have what I have today without them. But they didn't give me the love that a child um, needs because they couldn't, they didn't know how. Like, it's mm -hmm. just, you know. Um, and for me, that was a very traumatic experience as, as a little kid. Um, and I think that I just checked out and I went to uh, fantasy. Now, of course, as a three, four-year-old, it's not a sexual fantasy. I mean, it's not a romantic fantasy, but I have very early memories of, of um, remembering uh, times when I went to, like, six, seven years, like, went to camp, and I was, like, sitting in the bus, having this imagination story in my head of how I was this kid. It was like I made a whole world around it, which kids do. So it's not like, you know, um, I but was generally not when they're it. on a bus full of people. But and that's the thing that now that I look back at it, I remember how good it felt like it felt like good, like in a way that now getting high feel good to me. So I can getting high from fantasy now getting out from, from fantasy. Um, so I can, I can see how 
it was i i it was for me a checking out you know thing before i even knew what checking out was yeah. um, and checking out not to me mean like hey i'm going to go check this out like checking out like leaving reality yes leaving reality in my mind um you know, like any, um, our imagination is a wonderful thing, but like anything else, like food is a wonderful thing and somebody can eat, I will just externalize it because it's easier to understand. Somebody can go and have the most healthy meal and feel great and nurture their body and it's food. And then somebody like me would go and get food and get high. Same thing with like really like literally like, um, in and out makes me high, you know, like mm -hmm. it's, it's like I can fit it in my body. Like it's a, uh, uh, in and out is a uh, West coast, oh, uh, uh, <laughs> burger place that I also get very excited to, yes. to go to. <laughs> and most people are, but, um, but again, it's, and it's the same thing with imagination. I think, um, these people use imagination and me too. I'm a creative person. Mm. There, I, there's parts in my life. I use imagination very healthy and in a very great way. But I also use it to get high. Yeah. And um, I always like joke around with myself that it's like, like part of me is grateful that I'm not like, I don't use drugs that cost a lot of money and hurt your physical body and you can really get physically hurt by them. So that's that. That's good. But... I can sit on my couch alone without any other circumstances, uh, circumstances, you know, like nothing that I need from anybody, dependent on anybody, and um, and get high. So the pharmacy is in your brain and it's open twenty four hours. You you know what? I'm going to steal that from you. You yeah. can say it better. Um, and it's so hard to explain it to people. Like, I, I really think, like, you have to be a fantasy addict to get it. I think that if you're not a fantasy addict, you can maybe understand, you know, and kind of, like, go, like, all right, I get it. It could happen. But, um... Yeah, yeah. It's... When you get good at escaping into fantasy, it's good. I mean, you've created... It's incredibly unhealthy, but when you're in that fantasy, you are able to coax feelings out of yourself, out of your brain, drugs out of your brain that feel almost as real as if you were in the situation that you're fantasizing about. Yes. Like you could you could actually feel like, oh, I won the lottery yes. or I'm married to this person that I'm fantasi fantasizing about or um you know I've I'm I'm giving an academy awards speech yes. or I've created the the discovered the cure for cancer. Yes, yes, or somebody so cool loves me or somebody I'm not supposed to love love me back or you know as you can see that's my uh, drug mm -hmm. of choice or um I think it's like or or uh, chewing somebody out that's the thing i go to a oh, really? lot is is things that i would have liked to have said when somebody put me down or violated my boundaries you know mm. i've had so many conversations in my head where i fantasize about how i would have stuck up for myself where there isn't that fear mm. and that's the thing about fantasy um which i now know because i live more in reality i didn't know that before there is nothing nothing uncomfortable, nothing painful, nothing that you have to deal with in your fantasy. In your fantasy, you only feel good. Everything works to your advantage. 
even the conflict is just a resolution to get you to where you need to go. Mm. Um, and I was kind of like in shock when I joined reality <laughs> because uh, I was in situations where I used to fantasize about and, you know, the sober part of me was really happy to experience it and sure. I could feel gratitude and excitement to achieve something. But then everything comes with a layer of reality, which is insecurities and fear and unknown and ambiguity out of control and things you don't like about it yeah fantasy is complete control and reality is you know and the other thing is you're talking about this is is occurring to me is of course somebody who is a fantasy addict is is going to have difficulty with intimacy because Mm -hmm. intimacy is giving up control oh my god fantasy is taking control oh my god it's it's like I think they're the yin and yang, like it's the complete um, complete opposite. And that's what I discovered when I joined the human race when I got sober, is that um, relationships, A, I discovered that I didn't have any relationships, even though I thought I did. I'm very good at, I'm very social, so I'm very good at, you know, mm. talking to people. And I, you know, I have friends and I know people, but I never had relationships with people, meaning like uh, when when, you know, the other person upsets you or the other person um i mean that does not happen in my fantasy um (laughs) or that you have fears or or that you have this fear that you're going to get rejected and i'm not even talking about romantic relationship i'm actually not dating and i'm practicing i mean i'm realize without knowing not like intentionally but i'm practicing intimacy with friends and it's so hard. I can't even imagine dating, <laughs> yeah. but uh, um, but it's so great because I'm, I'm and I can't even tell you like how many times. Like it, I laugh at it with myself. How I have a friend and we're really close, and she's good, so I can talk talk to her about it and mm-hmm. tell her all the fears that come up for me. But I have broken up our friendship like ten times in my mind, uh-huh. like when. And it's not, it's a platonic relationship. Yeah, yeah, it's a friend, like a total friend. And like, when I call her, let me give you an example, right? When I call her and she's having a bad day, so it has nothing to do with me and she's just like short or whatever, you know, she's going through her own stuff. I hang up the phone and I tell myself, and I truly believe it, wow, this friendship is over. I mean, (laughs) it was fun, but she would never want to talk to me again. She was, I don't know what, she was pissed at me. She was, and I literally believe with every inch of my body that their relationship is over and then she calls me about a week later and i'm shocked and i tell her that you know and she laughs but to what was amazing to me the power of my belief that this relationship is over and how i used to just stop being in relationships with people because that would have been my my assumption you know, and just shows you how much fantasy was like what I, fantasy taught me how to have a relationship with people. And that is not good. Yeah, fantasy taught you how to have uh, an unrealistic yes, thank uh, you. <laughs> relationship with, with people. Yes. Um, you When you say, when I got sober, what what were you defining your sobriety by? Because, you you know, when it's drugs or alcohol, um, it's very clear cut what s- sobriety is. It's very black and white, but with something where it involves fantasy, 
or I mean, I mean, what what were the what were and are the things you used to de- determine your sobriety for your your love addiction? Um, there's a list of actions that I'm not allowed to take, and to an average person on the street, they would laugh at that list. It would be like I do this every day and I'm fine, but to me, if I uh, take those actions. Um, the odds of me getting high or kind of like stepping out out of reality is pretty much guaranteed. What is, before we get to that list, if you're comfortable sharing that or some of the things on the list, um, the person listening that doesn't understand this is saying, okay, so you get high. What What's... What's the matter with that? Mm-hmm. So you feel this intense feeling. You know, they're probably thinking, well, when I orgasm with somebody who's mm-hmm. exciting to be around, I'm getting high, right? Right. So what's the, what's the, explain for the listener what the difference is between why that's not okay for you? Um, whew, it's a loaded question. Um why don't we first do, do yeah. some of the list, and then you can say specifically why, if you did if that, you do that action, yeah. okay. it is not okay for you. I would try to externalize it as much as I can, because, you see, it's all, like, so internal that it's hard to explain to somebody, you know, something so internal in you. But I'll, I'll give you one example f- from the list. Um, it's um, no lesbian movies, all right? Now, lesbian movies are awesome, and I support the lesbian filmmaking community completely, and I think mm-hmm. it's amazing that people make movies for lesbians and mm-hmm. that there are lesbians filmmakers out there. Um, but for me, if I watch a lesbian movie, I get high. Now, again, it goes back to what we talked about before, about um, sitting on your couch and getting high. So we're kind of going back to that. But that's what it is. It it literally makes me high. Now, why is it wrong to get high? Um, so no lesbian movies is on mm-hmm. an action list of me of I can't do. Um, it ex- In the external world, um, I rather do that than anything else. Meaning I rather do that than take care of myself, than take a shower, then eat LT, then um, call friends, then deal with reality, you know, clean my apartment, go to a party where I'll be uncomfortable because I don't know a lot of people, try something new, you okay. know. So you can't control the frequency with which you would watch those if you began watching those? Uh, no, it's not about the frequency. No. Um, it's about... Um, my emotional frequency. You see, it's like I'm, um, and I, I don't know if, if you're the same, but I'm a very functional addict. If you know me and if you, and may, some people might listen to the podcast who know me will be shocked by what I'm talking about right now. If you know me, like I'm just a normal person. I'm very social. Like, you know, I'm, 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 I can talk to you. You know, I, I don't have any... Um, you wouldn't know any of this about me. I can, um, you know, for years, people, when I told them I, w- I had depression or things were shocked because I can put such a good f- show. I mean, really, like, it's it's almost like a second nature to me. Um, so 
it's hard to explain the effect of it because the effects are so personal and emotional. It's so live, internal. Yes. Now, I can live the rest of my life um, on my couch getting high. I will have a job. I will have food. I'll pay my bills. I will even have some friends. I might even be in a relationship. I'll see my family. I send birthday cards. I call on birthdays. I, you know, I, I, my cat is very well fed and loved. Mm. Uh, everything is good. You know, everything is fine. I've never been arrested. never mm. had anything with the law. Um, the effect are emotionals, uh, emotional. And um, so it's hard to explain emotional effects and how, how much it affects you because this is such an external world we live in that we're judged, good and bad is judged by external, you know, what you do. Um, but it hurt, I hurt, I'm hurting myself emotionally because instead of having um, healthy relationship with real people, I'm sitting on my couch alone mm-hmm. having a relationship with an imaginary thing, you know. Um, so am I hurting anybody externally? No. Am I hurting my life externally? No, but I am not fulfilled. When, the, go ahead. You're not fulfilled in, um, you know, I, I don't have, you know, I'm not fulfilled emotionally with just being a human being around you. You know, we can go into what's the meaning of life around that. You know, right. is it going to a party on Saturday night and meeting new people? Or is it, you know, it's what is important in our mm-hmm. lifetime? You know, what is important to all of us? Um, I can tell you that when I was getting high a lot and acting out in my fantasy addiction, I was not happy. I was high, which feels good, we all know, but I was not happy because you can have you can be in fantasy all the time because uh, you do have to go to a job and um and also and again it's so hard to un- to explain but reality is beautiful like reality is great and reality is here and when we're regardless what it seems like we are emotional beings. We're not, ex- we're not like doing beings. You know, we're mm-hmm. not like we do a lot of stuff, but our mechanism is emotional, um, and our and that's part of my journey of the healing of my happiness. I'm, I learned my happiness is mm-hmm. internal; it's not external. But we want that's L- a whole other. Yeah, L- let me. Uh try to articulate what I <laughs> please do <laughs> think you might be experiencing based on something I experienced a couple of weeks ago um, pornography can be addictive um, mm-hmm. for me it is addictive for me and I go stretches of not looking at it for years and then sometimes when I do look at it I'll look at it for five hours at a time and I notice that when I'm in that zone of doing that I don't want to do anything else mm-hmm. like you were talking about. It's like it it takes the color out of the rest of my life, mm-hmm. and the rest of my life feels gray. Um, watching a documentary, like last night I watched a documentary about Van Gogh, and, and it was beautiful, and I felt moved by it, and I don't even care about painting. I've never had an interest in Van Gogh. It just struck me as, oh, this would be an interesting thing to watch. A week before that, when I was looking at pornography, it would have been the last thing mm-hmm. I would have been able to look at. Even things that bring me pleasure, um, I didn't want to. I I wouldn't watch the NHL channel at night for the for the highlights. It it 
decreases my love of everything else in my life. Mm-hmm. It sucks the passion out of everything. Making phone calls, um, the phone feels like 500 pounds. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that is to me why porn art, even though I can be probably experiencing something when I'm looking at it that is on the surface similar to what somebody else experiences looking at pornography for me it's about the fantasy and not about the arousal because i don't even get necessarily aroused that much when i'm looking at pornography it's the escape Mm -hmm. of the pornography you couldn't say you couldn't say it better Yeah, yeah it's exactly that like you said thank you for that you know, it's so great. I've never heard anybody say that about the phone. It's exa- That's exactly how I feel. Like email, f- returning email feels like you have to stand in front of a shooting squad. <laughs> like that's... <laughs> so thank you for that. I've and, never heard anybody else say that. And I become impatient. I feel like the clock is ticking. You know, putting dishes in the dishwasher oh feels like it's taking forever. Um, it's, yeah, it, it, it sucks... Um, the the rest of my life just becomes it just becomes more difficult. Yes, you know it's true. And look, it's addiction is very seductive. You know, I mean, I, we all know it as addict that we feel very. Um, I mean, there's an element of like we're, we're very comfortable and well functioning when we're in our addiction because it's just like we feel safe, we're feeling control, we're like, we're good, you know. Um, but then, but it's all an illusion, mm-hmm. you know, it's all it's all an illusion. Um, and I discovered that illusion when I got sober and I started like, when I'm like sober and I, I have like sometimes, I don't know if you experience that days where I don't want to act out. Like most days I do want to act out, but, and I don't. And when you say act out, you mean um, engage in the things that would break your sobriety that you've defined yes. as addictive to you. Want to get high. Yeah. Like I get, a, you know, I walk around the day and I'm like, oh my God, if I can just get that feeling of getting high right now, that would be so great. That's what I mean by um, getting, you know, want to get high. Mm. Um but I have experience of days that I don't want to get high. And the funny thing is that's what I'm learning to pay attention to is in those days when I look at doing the things that I will die for do when I want to get high, they seem so like unsatisfying. You know, like lesbian movies, just like, oh, I don't like the plot. I don't have time to watch it. And that's how I know, because I've had both experiences now, that's how I know that it's the illusion of the addiction and that um, it's not really serving me the way I think that it's serving me. So it sounds like there's a rhythm to being in reality and experiencing the parts of reality that, that, that come with it, that when you're accepting that and you're kind of in sync with the universe that you can get a clarity on the acting out that makes it not attractive. Whereas when you're into the addiction, because it's distorted everything else and made talking to friends seem no good, it's like a a room that you become kind of trapped in, like a small, sad room. (laughs) Yes. Yes, I mean, 
Uh, to me, it's the same as drug addiction. I mean, I've never had drug addiction, but when I hear people who are, have drug addiction talk about how they rather go to their friend's, how, uh, friend's house and get high than go see their family. I mean, when you listen to it, you think it's insanity. So I don't have a family, but it's like it's the same idea. I would probably, if I had a family and I wanted mm-hmm. to get high, I would prefer get, you know what I mean? I, like, it's the same it's it's the same thing and and the thing about you know the beautiful thing about the human being experience i'm going to try not to get too philosophical but mm-hmm. which because i'm an addict i don't get but i've seen other people who are not addicts get it and i've you know had very small experiences is that the whole human ex- the beautiful thing about the human experience is all the emotions we feel you know we feel happy we feel sad we feel joy we're just like part of the flow of life and our experience of being a human being and as an addict that's like you run away from it you don't want to feel you tell yourself you know you want to be happy but um in order to feel you got to feel everything and you have to give up some control you have to accept things on life's terms give up all control and that brings us back to why am I a fantasy addict or why am I you know like to get high from fantasies because giving up control meaning I might feel rejected I might feel pain and for me like I said before feeling rejection is so intense that it feels to me like I will die that now, when you look at, you know, <laughs> should yeah. I get high? Should I feel like I'm going to die? Mm. To the addict mind, you know, you like, well, let's get high. And I, th- and I think that's why trust and vulnerability, trust that there is a love in the universe, that there is goodness in the universe is so fundamental to being able to give up control. Because if we solely view the universe as chaotic and negativity and cruelty, are the dominating force in it, well, who's going to want to give up control and be vulnerable in those circumstances? But I think when we build trust and deep intimate relationships with other people, um, it's easier to release control and to say, um, I don't need to micromanage everything because I have the feeling that the universe is going to unfold in a way that will not leave me in the dust. Yeah, it may cause me pain. It may be scary. But in the long run, there's going to be enough beauty that it's worth staying in reality and staying in in touch with my feelings and in relationships with people that can be complicated and and messy. Um, it, that's been my experience mm-hmm. when I'm in a really good place. Mm-hmm. Is I it's all how how I view the the universe. Um, views me and has what's in store for me and i think that's why um often in recovery why they hammer it into people's brains to say you've got to find something in the universe greater than yourself that that Mm -hmm. you can pray to or turn your life over to or or whatever yes i know i i i completely thank you for saying it i completely agree with you i think that the I mean, you know, this is all addiction 101, but the chronological thing of, like, you know, like my life is that um, when I was a kid, 
I, in order to survive, I needed, I needed to shut down emotionally. So, and I didn't turn it back on until like two years ago. <laughs> so I'm, so I, ne I, I never got, so life to me was really hard and horrible because I never got to just experience, like you said, you know, the emotional, like there's nothing wrong with being rejected. So you feel yeah. a certain way and then you move on and you're not going to be rejected. Nobody's rejected by everybody, you know, yeah. and especially yourself, like the, the amount of things you can give yourself and ask the universe to help you, you know, get yourself is, you know, it's, it's, it's endless, you know, and it's beautiful. Um, I heard that was there a thought you wanted to no, finish. No, go for it. I heard somebody dis say one time, "Life is a roller coaster, and you can either bitch about it and shut your eyes and wait for it to be over, or you can throw your hands up in the air and enjoy how fucking scary and exhilarating it is." And I go back to that often, and I think, yeah, you know, without the terror, without the disappointment, without the sadness, the joy, and the safety. And the other things wouldn't feel as good. And if I don't get to share the terror and the disappointment and the pain with somebody else, it kind of just remains that. It just remains um, this part of my past that um, it's like a toxicity that never gets released. But when I get on the phone with somebody and I'm like, oh, I just made a fucking jackass out of myself and I'm feeling so much shame right now. Maybe we laugh about it, and that dissipates some of the the poison in that in that memory. And then the next time I make an ass out of myself, maybe I'm able to laugh at it a little bit quicker and mm -hmm. give myself some 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 leeway and remember from talking to my friend. Oh yeah, and then they shared that thing with me that they did that was even worse mm -hmm. and more humiliating. But when we're trapped in fantasy, we're not picking up that phone. We're not talking no, to those people. No. And even if you do pick up the phone and talk to this person, you're not present. You're not here. You just it's just words being exchanged. And you can't there's wait no, for it to be over with. Yeah. You're just no, looking I'm, looking for the opening to say, yeah. "Well, listen, I got to get going." You know. Yeah, it's, yeah. What are some other things that uh, that define your sobriety? So we've got uh, no watching uh, lesbian movies. Um, I think I'll stick to that just because it's a very... Uh, that's a big know, one for you. Yes, that's a big okay. one for me. It's just such an intimate, intimate list that to any, I think to any other human being, there will be like, is this a comedy podcast? Like, what mm -hmm. is going on? Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, it's just so personal to, you know, to my own... Uh, you know, to my own journey and what I know about myself. I want people to know that it's really not about how X-rated this thing is. It's about how we use it to escape reality. And mm -hmm. it's usually when there's something in my life that I don't want to face that I found my, find myself wanting to check out and get a hit from this thing to get that rush through my body. Yeah. And yeah, thank you for sharing. And, you know, I, because of my, I think, early birth trauma and, and my childhood, like, I have a lot of wires crossed. Like, one of the major ones for me, which is so weird to admit, but um, is that I used to, like, really find myself attracted to women in their 50s. And finally, I, I, I was called on it and in a loving way, you know, by, by a therapist. And I started to realize that my wires between my mother's love and romantic love are crossed and that 
I'm, it's, look, it's not that I want to date my mother, <laughs> definitely not sleep with my mother, oh my God. But there is like this wires crossed where I confuse romantic love with mother's love. So I want to date somebody in their 50s because when they love me, it's like this. Um, nurturing? Nurturing. I don't know what it is. It's like this lack of, of mother's love. And the fact that I don't, I'm not attracted to in the same way to women my age or younger was a red flag for me because it's like, and I can also like now that I pay attention to it, I can feel it in my body. An attraction to somebody my age is much more cleaner. It's much more like it's not insanity. It's just like two people liking the way they look, enjoying the conversation. An attraction, an attraction to women to a woman in her fifties, feel like it comes from a place in my body that it fills with so much mud and stuff on it, and I feel like I could die if I don't get that love. And I'm like, you know what I mean? It's so it's a great way of describing it. Yeah. So it shows me that. Even though, again, on external level, it's like whatever, but there is something there emotionally for me that I need to stay away from, which sounds insanity to tell to another human being, you know. Uh, I but, think a lot of people listening to that right now, light bulbs are going off in their head and they're going, oh my God, yes, yeah. I know that. I know that feeling. That's why it it, it makes, why, why I feel this emptiness after I get a fix of that, yeah. of that thing, yeah. I, I think there's something uh, about also about wanting to be rescued in mm. there. You know, not necessarily your life being rescued, but the emptiness in us being rescued of that something plugging up that hole that feels like it's going to like a black hole in the universe. Like it's going, we're going to fold in on ourselves and disappear if yeah. if we can't get something to take us out of that. Feeling. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think, you know, we're all, like, we get our first relationship with our parents, and we spend the rest of our life trying to either mimic it, run away from it, fix it, change it, whatever it is for everybody, it's different. And to me, a big part of getting better was to realize what that relationship was, what I didn't get from it, and how to give it to myself and not try to find the right relationship or use other people to get it. So how do you feed that part of yourself in a healthy way? What are, is self-care is mm. a big one? $64,000 question yeah. right there. Um, you know, it's a struggle. It's, it's, a daily, it's a daily struggle and a daily triumph. Um, I, um, it's, it starts with a little thing, which is staying sober and allowing myself to feel my feelings because that's something that wasn't allowed in my in my household um it's that's a big one feeling my feelings i mean i know it sounds so banal but it took me a long time to feel my feelings um and um i think it's one of the most important things in the world is for is for people to be able to feel their feelings i think so much dysfunction and chaos and violence mm -hmm. and addiction is because people have never learned the tools to sit in their body and feel their feelings mm -hmm. and know that they're not going to die yeah, and also not judge the feelings because a lot of times we feel feelings because we're human beings and we can't even stop feeling our feelings, but we then judge them. Like I remember the beginning. We think we need to change them. 
Yeah, like in the beginning, sadness for me was such a horrible thing to feel. Like I was um, really not okay with it. And I used to judge myself for feeling it. And then, again, with all the work that I've done, I learned to really embrace it and really see the beauty in feeling sad. I'm going through this right now with anger. Uh, because anger for me is like the most like no, no feeling. And it's so hard for me to let myself feel angry because anger... Were you sc- scolded as a child when you would... Oh, yeah, have- there was no anger. Yeah, yeah there, was, there was just no... There was no anger. Um, and um, so anger to me, because I, I'm just starting to do work on it, is uh, it goes straight to uh, danger and feeling um, unsafe. And um, so when I get angry, I feel unsafe. So... Obviously, when once that even ignite, I shut it down because who wants to feel unsafe? You know, who wants to feel unsafe? Like and the danger is going to come from outside you or inside you and out. Um, again, it's hard to like give it an external explanation, but it's just this danger that the external of it obviously is that the other person will just never be in my life, or okay. that. Um, if I get mad at work or if I get, you know, mad with somebody that obviously I will get fired, I will mm-hmm. never be at work or uh, I will never be uh, their fr- friends, they will never be friends with me. Uh, I'm trying to think about like even with myself. Um, yeah, like like the thing that goes on with me because it's not only about that. Sometimes I can sit at home and get, my, you know, angry at my cat, you know, get angry mm-hmm. at anything. Um, I, I, I tell myself that this is not okay. Like the voices in my head goes like, this is not okay. This is not okay. You can't do this. You can't feel like that. You can't be like that. Um, and I have to, I have to, uh, uh, learn to walk through those voices and, and still feel it. I, I took a boxing, which helped a lot. Mm-hmm. Really, like it's, it is a release. And I don't know, I, I start to, I'm starting to feel the changes a little bit. I, I get mad at people now, which I've never done in my life. And I get, but the danger for me is Externally that or just internally? Externally. You, you yell yeah, at them? Yeah, I started yelling at people in the past two months, which shocked me. But, but what I notice is the danger with me is because I've never done it healthy way. I can go from zero to 500 in a second. So mm. I can, if, I can get fired and I can really ruin relationships because I don't do it as a healthy expression of my feeling. I do it as like, holy crap, oh my God, I'm feeling angry, oh my God, and I'm going to yell at you and I'm releasing and you know, you know what I mean? Like it's like this insanity, it's like learning to walk, you know, it's mm-hmm. like a baby learns to walk, it's not, they're not walking steadily confident, you know. Yeah. Um, so it seems like the key is, you know, there's a difference between feeling anger and unleashing that anger in an inappropriate way on somebody else or on yourself. So it's okay to feel yeah. angry. It's what you do with it that matters, that's healthy that, or an unhealthy. Yes, and that's also been my biggest challenge that I was kept telling my therapist, I don't know what the hell you're talking about, because I told her, you know, fine, I, I'll feel anger, you know, but... I don't know how to feel anger without release. Like sadness, I can feel sad and I can sit on my couch and maybe I'll cry, maybe I won't, but I can feel it like I can just let it, you know, run through me and and feel it. Um, But anger, 
I I need to do I need to do something. I mean, I need to uh, I don't I don't know. Like something needs to happen. Like yeah. it's you know. Um, she suggest she she gave me actually some great suggestion, which is you know screaming into pillows and breaking ninety nine cent store plates and like oh, like awesome. let it out, let it out. That's why I I started boxing as a wanting to lose weight and realize very fast that. Oh my God, I can't even tell you what goes on in my mind when I box. The people I imagine on the other side, and it's such a great release because it's very safe, but I can go insane with it. Um, That's great. So yeah, so anger is definitely something I'm learning to, um, um, anger and happiness, you'd be surprised. Happiness is uncomfortable for you? Very uncomfortable. Is it because you think it's false and the bottom's going to drop out at any minute? No, it's because I don't know how to hold it in my body i feel i don't know what to do with it i am so used to feeling miserable and i'm so comfortable with feeling miserable that feeling happiness and joy um it makes me very hyper it makes me like i don't it's i'm not comfortable with it now i not to say that i'm not pursuing it and i don't enjoy it but i'm very uncomfortable with it which is going back to fantasy is one of like how how fantasy is dangerous because in my fantasy happiness feels great and I'm awesome and happy and everything is great and when in reality happiness feels very uncomfortable for me and I need to learn I had to start learning how to deal with happiness in my when I feel happiness and I had to um, I found that for me the only way to process happiness is with gratitude like that's the only way I could I, I can't wrap my head Can around it. Can you be it. more specific? That when I feel very happy um and I don't know what to do with that feeling, um I just go to gratitude. I'm just I just go and I tell myself right whatever it is at the moment why am i uh, that I'm, I'm i'm very grateful about the happiness i'm very grateful about those things that made me happy and that calms me down that makes me feel very comfortable with happiness uh meditations help me a lot with uh kundalini yoga meditation helped me a lot with happiness because again i know i know it sounds weird but like happiness makes me feel it's kind of like anger like i can't process anger i can't process happiness i can't just let it come in go through my body and and move on you know to the other side and just feel it um it gets stuck there and it makes me very uncomfortable um wouldn't it be great to have it stuck there though no because i know yeah. no because the um the evolution of feelings is that they just pass through pass you. through you. So I know it's hard because happiness is so positive, and who doesn't want to feel happy? But it doesn't. But you see, it doesn't make me. F it. I feel happy, but I feel uncomfortable with it. So it's um. So even though it's a great experience, it's still I'm still agitated, and I'm still. Mm. And I think that. In the back burner, what happened is that because it makes me feel uncomfortable, I'm afraid of feeling happy because I don't, I'm, I feel like there will be something, you know I what see. I mean? Yes. Because I, and I can see the difference because again, misery, give me misery any day. I love feeling miserable. Mm -hmm. It makes me feel safe. I feel happiness makes me feel out of control and safe. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. 
I don't know if you experienced that or not. Um, I when happiness hits me, I just I want it to last forever because I feel like it's been so long. You know, I suppose I feel that more so that way about passion. When mm. I'm feeling passion, happiness, you know, is right behind it because mm. the way my depression affects me is it 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 takes away my feeling of vigor and vitality. That's what I suffer with. I don't suffer from dep- uh, from a sadness with my depression. When I'm off my meds, I suffer greatly from sadness. But my meds bring me up to a a place where um, I alternate between feeling flat and feeling quote unquote normal, where I can experience passion and I can experience um, other mm. things. And that's the day to day battle is to feel vigor. And vitality and and passion, and that's why exercise is so important. Like I haven't exercised now in like four or five days, and I can completely feel mm. it. Completely feel it. Yeah, yeah. Is there is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we uh, we wrap it up? Um, I think this is it. This was mm-hmm. a a really great episode. You know, we haven't really touched on this topic so much, and um, I feel like uh, I think it's one of the best kept secrets in the world um and yeah and there's lev- different levels of um fantasy addiction or people just using it not even as an addiction just to numb themselves or check out with tv and whatever but i think that it's like not facebook is another one that mm-hmm. um i think ignites a lot of fantasy yeah. in people but uh, yeah, especially so I'm glad the, we talked about it. Yeah, especially the fantasy that everybody else has a better life oh than you. Oh my God, that is yeah. like, should be the Facebook uh, marketing motto. <laughs> you know, that's one of the things why I recommend instead of using Facebook as a, as a way to feed yourself with external validation from people, I like to use Facebook um, as ways to connect and say, hey, here's this great thing that you guys should check out or, mm-hmm. you know, maybe this person needs help or or sometimes to ask for help to say, could you guys take this new survey that yeah. I put up? Um, could you, you know, uh, support this sponsor that has been really supporting the show? Because um, I find that if I, if I start saying, I don't know, if I start trying to feed myself mm-hmm. from from Facebook, it's... It's that bottomless pit that will never be fed. Yeah, no, that's a great, um, a, a great example. And one last story was I remember my relationship with Facebook changed the day that um, I was just like at a two weeks when I was just doing a lot of social stuff. And I remember a friend or somebody I know come to me and say, oh, my God, like you seem like you have the best life ever. And I did not. I was miserable. I was just like posting things, not not even like to try to show people off. It was just like, Mm -hmm. you know, something you do. And that's when I realized that Facebook is an illusion. Now, there's nothing wrong about with Facebook. I just want to clarify. Again, you... The misuse of Facebook. Well, it's the emotional misuse. Like, if you, you know, if somebody is using Facebook to numb themselves, they should look... Themselves, you know, just mm-hmm. check on themselves why are they numbing and do they want to numb. But, um, but that was for me huge because then I realized that, um, I'm experiencing the same thing with other people and not to, not to, um, feed the lies that I tell myself when I watch my newsfeed and think everybody has a great life. And I keep remembering that moment and going like, all right, they just had fun this time, but I don't know what happened to them yesterday and how mm-hmm. they felt about it. Yeah. 
Well, Maya, thank you, uh, thank you so much for sharing your life with us. Thank you for having and me and being my buddy. <laughs> Anytime. Many, many thanks to uh, to Maya. And uh, this episode will soon be transcribed and available on our website. Many thanks to Accurate Secretarial for donating their time and helping out the show. Um, I, uh, I guess I'll do it. I. I worry sometimes that I ask for donations uh, too much and that I'm going to scare people away, but we need donations. And there's a couple of different ways that you can do it. You can do a single time, uh, one-time donation via PayPal uh, or a recurring monthly donation via PayPal or my favorite, a recurring monthly donation via Patreon, and then you can get free rewards uh, from me. And um, the, just the the user interface on Patreon is so much better, um, not only on my end, but on your end as well. So um, that's one way to support the show. Another way is go to iTunes, write something nice if you feel like it's the truth, and um, give us a good rating. That boosts our ranking. It brings more people to the show. Um, you can use our Amazon uh, shopping link. And then if you buy something at Amazon, Amazon will give us uh, a small percentage uh, of the cost of whatever it is you buy, but it doesn't increase the cost of whatever it is that you're buying. It just comes from, from Amazon. That's a great way to help support the show. And uh, spreading the word through social media is a really big way to help expand the podcast. So um, any of the above are always greatly, greatly appreciated. Um I got an email from somebody that wanted, uh, that said they wished that there was a place to meet up with other listeners in their area. Well, if you go to the forum, there is, um, not sure the exact name of the thread, but it is something like meetups. It, it should be pretty obvious when you, when you go there. So, and if you're ever browsing the forum and have any, questions about it, just post a question, especially in the introduce yourself here um, portion. And somebody will somebody will answer that for you. This is an email that I got from uh, Lou. And uh, I forgot to ask if Lou is male or female, but it doesn't matter. Uh, Lou writes, uh, hey, Paul, I'm listening to the episode on misophonia, and I feel compelled to tell you about my own personal hell, which is trypophobia, T-R-Y-P-O-P-H-O-B-I-A. Uh, but I've never heard it named by a professional, so it could be trypophobia. It's a condition I've had since I can remember. In a nutshell, it is a nervous, flesh-crawling response to, a, to particular patterns and textures typically organic and often involving small holes. It's especially bad when associated with skin. It's a condition, a known condition, although obviously I've never Googled it, lest I turn inside out. However, it's not recognized in the DSM. This is probably because of the large pool of possible triggers, which are different for each person. So it's not like being deathly afraid of a single thing, say snakes or cotton wool. And this is one of the particularly awful things about it. You never really know when you might come across a trigger. They often come out of the blue. 
You might come across something in the street or scrolling through images online and completely by accident trigger yourself. My mom has it too, although because I also have anxiety and depression, it can be much more acute for me. If I see something particularly bad, it can put me out for two weeks or more. So that's like two weeks of prickling skin, adrenaline rushes, flesh-crawling sensations, obsessively imagining the trigger where my mind very helpfully transposes the pattern onto my skin, because why not, Uh, panic attacks, etc. I only know one other person who has symptoms like mine and who experiences, experiences it so acutely. But it's really hard to talk about because even talking about it can be triggering. There doesn't seem to be any specific treatment for it other than anxiety management. Having spoken to few people, I don't know if uh, if that was meant to be a few people, I get the feeling that lots of people have this condition to some degree or another. It's just that my symptoms are really severe. I spent most of my life not knowing if it was even a condition with a name. I came across it through a friend when I was about 26. Before then, I just assumed it was a weird quirk that just me and my mom had. Anyway, I thought this might be of interest to you. Have you come across it before? Lou. And no, I have not. And thank you for that. That uh, I learned so many things doing the podcast and add that to the uh, to the list. And it sounds really overwhelming, especially when it's uh, got that two-week thing. Oh my God. Sip of tea. I want to tell you guys about Blue Apron. I love Blue Apron. I've been doing it uh, every week for over a year now. And uh, this week, they're a sponsor. And if you haven't tried Blue Apron, it's incredible home cooking. And it's never been more attainable. Because for less than 10 bucks a meal, Blue Apron delivers easy-to-follow seasonal recipes along with pre-proportioned, or is it pre-portioned, ingredients right to your door. No more overspending at restaurants or high-energy energy grocery stores, high-end grocery stores. Am I a mess tonight? Am I am I overjudging or am I a mess? I think I might be a mess. Might have been too much caffeine today. Uh, and I don't know why I'm drinking more caffeine at uh, 10.58. I'd like that car to have a deeper rumble. Oh, my God. My new place. The I, You know, I really like my new place. But the only thing I really don't like about it is that it uh, is on a busy street. Um, Continuing, Blue Apron is just going to love this ad. No more overspending at restaurants or high-end grocery stores. By the way, that's one of the things I really love about Blue Apron is I go to the grocery store so much less. And with Blue Apron, you can prepare delicious, memorable meals yourself in under 40 minutes. Uh... Some of the meals available in March include salmon piccata with orzo and broccoli, pork chops with miso butter and, uh, and with bok choy and marinated apple, uh, vegetable chili and baked sweet potatoes with crispy tortilla strips, and spicy shrimp coconut curry with cabbage and rice. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash mental. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash mental. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. 
So as I mentioned the last couple of weeks, um, I've been I've been mixing up the surveys a little bit. Um, I don't I don't know why I feel the need to prepare you for this being a slightly different week. I guess I guess for uh, maybe for the new listener um, who doesn't care for these surveys, why am I so worried about what people think? Why can't I just? Be me and accept the results. <laughs> That's what it should say on my tombstone. Why couldn't I have just been myself and accepted the results? I think everybody has that question, though, about themselves. It's whatever. Maybe not that necessarily, but please tell me I'm, I'm not alone. This is the shouldn't feel this way survey. Um, and it was filled out by Jelly Bean. And she writes uh, to the question, how would you like to be remembered? That I was nice, loving, and funny. That I was loved. And I was writing that make you feel like it's impossible. How would you use a time machine to observe myself in childhood to figure out what exactly fucked me up? By the way, the most common, the most common answer to this one, uh, along with, I would like to go back and see my parents' childhood or see my parents early in their relationship. Um, I'm supposed to listen to people when they talk, but I just can't drum up interest. I'm supposed to want to get a job, but I don't. I feel panic at the thought. I'm supposed to feel supportive to my crazier-than-me friend, but she's so freaking needy and self-centered, so I just feel annoyed. I'm supposed to care, but I just fucking don't. Uh, how does writing your real feelings make you feel? I wish I could say or express my feelings in real life. Do you think you're abnormal? No, I think people just wear masks. Mine just got too heavy. Thank you for sharing that. And that that is one of the things that I think uh, codependent people really struggle with is uh, saying no to people or letting somebody know that they're starting to get drained by them because... Um, we don't have a script for that, and um, there are ways to do it. There are ways to do it, um, but it takes some thought and some diplomacy, and I, I think mixing it with reminding that person that you love them and you care about them, but you're just feeling a little overwhelmed right now, not even necessarily by them, but just you know by emotional conversations and... Um, or it could be them. Could just could be, you know, I'm just, I need to recharge my battery. I need a, a break from talking about this. Or why does it always have to be you? I, I went to coffee with a friend one time, and he talked and talked and talked and talked and talked and talked and talked. And then I said, there, were, there was finally a pause, and I said, Brian, we have been here for 45 minutes and you have talked the entire time and he and I have a good relationship you know so I I said you know I love you but this isn't a conversation and I said and sometimes that's why I don't return your phone calls and um, I know it was hard for him to to hear but he's somebody who's in recovery and uh, I think he heard me but at the very least I got to speak my truth, and um, it felt good. felt good to stick up for myself. 
Uh, now, these are single answers to the how would you use a time machine if you had one. Um, this person says, I'd want to go back and tell a 13-year-old me to get out, to run away, but I can't change things. So I'd go into the future and witness my death so I could be prepared for when it comes. I would not want that. I would not want that. It would ruin the rest of my life knowing that. The only thing it would do is it would make me more efficient with my money because <laughs> I would make sure I was spending my last penny on my last day. Um, but it's interesting how different people would uh, would, would use it. Uh, this person says, I'd like to relive any moments where I inspired some amount of pride and happiness in my mother. I would like to see her face again. Wow, that's beautiful. This person says, I would go deep into my childhood and observe the behaviors and traits that lead to the anxiety-ridden hypochondriac staring at me in the mirror today. Uh, this person says, perhaps... It's the Olympics, but I would go back and watch Nadia Comaneci get two perfect tens. I assume you mean in person because you can watch that. That's on video still somewhere. Uh, I would go to 18th century France and see the storming of the Bastille. I think that's still on video. Horrible quality, but I think it is. I would go to classes that Aristotle taught. Uh, that one is actually... It's not on VHS. It's it's on reel to reel. I don't know why I'm continuing this bit. The first one was mildly funny, but uh, anyway, I would watch Martin Scorsese direct Taxi Driver. That's a good one. I'd see the making of true greatness and the meaning of revolution. I like this person, and I had the biggest crush on Nadia Comaneci. I think it would have been. I think it was the '76 Olympics. Yeah, because the, the 72 Olympics, the big gymnastic star was Olga Corbett. And uh, Nadia Komenich was from Romania, if I'm not mistaken. And yeah, it was fucking amazing. And it's funny, today she wouldn't even make the team. That's how far gymnastics has, has progressed. This person says, I'd like to see my parents when they first met or were newly married to see what the dynamic was before they got over each other. Uh, I think everybody is fascinated by why the fuck did my parents decide to get married? Like my mom loves to talk and my dad hates talking. I suppose in some ways... It's a fit because the other person fills the silence, but after a while, nobody, I think, wants to be around somebody that constantly talks. I'm not saying my mom constantly talks, but she can go on a she can go on a stretch. This person says, I'd go far in the future and see what things were like. I'd want to go so far in the future that I could not connect to my life nor the immediate subsequent generations. Wow, that's, that's some deep shit there. That is some deep shit. I'd go back and see how my eight-year-old, how my father, when he was eight years old, was treated after witnessing his mother die in a car accident. Wow. My grandmother, who uh, had dementia towards the end of her life, um, 
when she was seven, she saw her mom collapse and die uh, in front of her. Uh, and it was at church, I guess. And my grandmother's last couple of years, uh, when she had dementia, it, she would just tell that story over and over and over again. It's uh, It was heartbreaking and boring. Is that a little cold? Is that a little cold? It's the truth. About it, by the third time you hear any story, it's pretty boring. But I fell for her. She was not a warm woman. She was not mean. Uh, she was my mom's mom. But she was, uh, she was, yeah, I don't know how to describe her. <laughs> There's a picture of me and her when I was like nine years old standing in front of a building in downtown Chicago posing for a picture. And I kid you not, somebody could we're so, standing so far apart from each other with our arms at our sides, just both. It, it, looked like, it looks like a mugshot for the world's oddest bank robbing team. <laughs> she was not a hugger. Uh, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by shame and secrets, but spelled S-H-A-M-A-N instead of shame and... And uh, he is straight in his 20s, raised in a stable and safe environment, never been sexually abused, never been physically or emotionally abused. He writes, my parents deserve gold fucking medals for how they made me feel safe and loved as a child. Sorry, no shame or secrets here, just feelings I want to share. Uh, darkest thoughts. Whenever someone is rude or otherwise extremely inconsiderate to me, I imagine myself pulling out a gun and calmly shooting them through the head. It's essential in these fantasies that I remain completely emotionless. The idea of showing that person that they are so unimportant to me that I could rob them of their life without the slightest hint of pity or regret would be the ultimate way to prove that my disregard for them is stronger than their disregard for me. That is like a really dark poem. That is so... That is so... I've always wondered why when you hear a description of, you know, a gunman did this, it's always they were incredibly calm. And that's what must, that's what it must be coming from is that place of, that it adds to their feeling of power to not be um, effusive. I think I'm using that word correctly. <laughs> if I didn't, Please write me back and shame me. Darkest Secrets. My younger sister was molested as a child by a neighbor boy when they were both around four years old. She now suffers from PTSD as a result. The thing is, I knew that they were, quote, experimenting with each other back when it was going on and never told anyone and even told my brother that it was normal and not to worry about it. That's not on you, man. That is not on you. Um... And you said that your sister and the neighbor boy were both four years old. It's not on that boy either. He was a child. And um, that's not to say your sister's suffering isn't valid and real. But um, 
um, I would imagine it, it, uh, something had been probably taught or done to him that he was acting out. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Anxious Academic, and he writes, I've always struggled with social anxiety, understanding boundaries, perceiving social cues, and that sort of thing. In university, I rarely went out to parties, but when I did, I tended to drink heavily, both to lower my inhibitions and also to ward off the relentless anxiety. In my third year, I began having panic attacks, severe anxiety, and depression, all things I realized with the benefit of hindsight I'd experienced before, and I started counseling and antidepressants. Also that year, I helped to direct a play, and we had a huge blowout party on the closing night. I showed up, drank a huge bottle of wine, most of a bottle of fireball whiskey, told everyone I loved them, and then blacked out. My next memory is of sitting on someone's porch in the neighborhood reading their morning paper at 4 a.m. Then I remember getting back into my then-girlfriend's, now wife's, house she shared with four other students. I went upstairs, crawled into bed with her long, crawled into bed with her long enough to tell her something about one of the headlines I'd read, then was back up and in the bathroom. I was so sick. I drank an inhuman amount and had not counted on the antidepressants affecting my tolerance. I was sick into the toilet, and after, because it was not my house and I'm polite, I cleaned it. Partway through, I needed to be sick again, so I used the sink. While cleaning the sink, I was sick in the toilet. While cleaning the toilet, I was sick in the tub. At the end, I was at it for almost 90 minutes, and the entire bathroom was scrubbed, a first for that student house. In the morning, my partner brought me scrambled eggs on toast to thank me for cleaning. I took one look at them and burst into tears. At least you didn't throw up again. Thank you for that. This is the Shouldn't Feel This Way survey. Uh, This is filled out by Grace, and she's a teenager, and I'm just going to read part of it. Uh, I'm supposed to feel happy about life, but I don't. I feel scared, alone, hopeless, and I'm like and like I'm always on the brink of tears. I'm supposed to feel happy about my academic life after having gotten into one of the best high school magnet programs in the country, but I don't. I feel inadequate and like a tiny, tiny, tiny fish in a very, very big pond. I'm supposed to feel happy about my perfectly good life with a genuinely functional, supportive family, no abuse, with no reason to not be happy, but I don't. I feel depressed. I'm supposed to feel grateful for this opportunity to go to such a great school with genuinely awesome teachers and friends, but I don't. I feel stressed, like I'm taking it for granted and like I don't deserve the opportunity and that there are other people who need it more than I do. How does it make you feel to write that out? A bit better. Compressing all of these feelings into words makes them seem less giant and unmanageable. Do you think you're abnormal for this? Yes, I have no reason to be clinically depressed. Uh, I would just want to stop you right there and say you are not abnormal and you don't need a reason to be clinically depressed. That's getting better. It doesn't matter. It's not like, oh, well, your reason doesn't make sense to me, so I'm not going to allow you to come into therapy or prescribe you meds or teach you these tools to help you cope. 
No, it's the biggest myth about mental health is that there has to be a reason for feeling the way you do. All feelings are valid. There's just healthy and unhealthy ways of expressing it. Um, so thank you for sharing that, Grace. And a ton of people feel the way you do. You are so not alone. Uh, these are some more time machine responses. I would watch how Gene Wilder dealt with Gilda's cancer diagnosis and see if the ways in which I responded to the diagnosis of cancer from my husband at the time, boyfriend, uh, since I constantly worry that I didn't handle the news in the greatest condition. Uh, if you, the, the one thing I remember from uh, Gene Wilder's autobiography was he talked about, no, I'm sorry, it was Gilda's. Was it Gilda's autobiography? I think it was Gilda's autobiography. And she said that the first six months, um, she she was, I don't know if she, she was emotionally abusing him, but she wasn't, she wasn't considering his feelings. And in so many words, he said to her after about six months, just because you have cancer, it doesn't give you the right to treat me like shit. And she said she was grateful that, that he shared that um, because it kind of snapped her snapped her out of the mode that she had been in. Uh, this person says, honestly, I would go back and see what my childhood was. I have thoughts that I simply made up a bunch of horrible things that were done to me, and I really want to know the truth. That is a really, really common one. Uh, I would visit my mom when she was a hippie in the 60s in California. She died when I was young, and I feel like I never knew her. I hear stories, but I want to know myself. People say I'm like her. I'd also visit the Sistine Chapel when Michelangelo was painting the ceiling, and if possible, visit the time when the earth was first created so that I knew my purpose and know the truth. Wow. Going big. Going big. Um... I would love to see Michelangelo uh, sculpting David. That is, I never appreciated it until I saw it in person. And I think it's like nine or 10 feet tall, maybe even taller. And in person, you get a sense of the body language and that David's a, a badass that's about to kick somebody's ass. And I had never gotten that from the photographs of it. And it's, it's truly one of the most remarkable things that I've, that I've ever seen. And, uh, and I'm including uh, seeing Journey live in 1979. I never saw Journey. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Nerd Girl, and she writes, About eight months ago, I started to see a therapist. My emotionally stunting parents forced me to bottle everything up, and for some reason when I got to college, it all started to come out. I kept my visits a secret for a while, but finally told my mom, to which she bluntly asked, Well, are you better now? Short and sweet. Actually, short and sour. That just that sentence, I I like <laughs> so easily pictured your mom, so easily 
pictured her. This is a shouldn't feel this way survey. This is filled out by a woman calling calling herself tired. What? How would you like to be remembered? Funny and shy. Liked food and cats. Quiet and loud. Did more to cheer others up than she realized. How does writing that make you feel? Trying hard not to cry. And now I'm hungry for Cajun food. (laughs) What a fantastic sentence that is. Trying hard not to cry. Now I'm hungry for Cajun food. You just made my day. You just made my day. You know what? Maybe our uh, culinary choices are dictated by our moods. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to keep a uh, a mood journal. I love Indian food. I think I could be in any mood and eat chicken tiki masala. Uh, how would you use a time machine to watch all the shitty events from my past to see if it really was as bad as I remember? To find out if I was raped. I don't know if I really want to know. Uh, to see if there were any good times from my childhood. That has to be one of the most difficult mysteries for somebody to live with is not knowing not knowing that about the um, being raped. Um, I'm supposed to feel happy about happy about moving into a new, bigger place with my boyfriend, but I don't. I feel resentful and depressed. How does writing that make you feel? Nice, because I finally put my finger on the word that describes how I feel. Do you think you're abnormal? No. Would knowing other people feel the same make you feel better? Probably. Thank you for that. The power of writing, man. The power of writing. Sometimes we don't know what we're feeling until we have to form a sentence. Uh, This person says, I'd use a time machine to go back to the typical nights at home watching movies or Wheel of Fortune, Jeopardy, and the Jay Leno show. Uh, with my mom or dad cooking dinner every night, and we'd all sit down at the table with my brother and my old cat that always joins us as a family. Uh, sounds like you had a nice, stable home and terrible taste in talk shows. But other than that, <laughs> it wasn't bad, but not my first choice of late-night show that I would watch. Um, I would hang out with famous writers and comedians. I could use a good conversation. Well, hanging out with comedians, uh, don't don't go hang out with a big group of comedians looking for vulnerability. Because, well, one-on-one, probably fine. But uh, yeah, as a group, it is... Uh, this person says, I would watch The Big Bang, but also a bit of time before The Big Bang to witness simultaneously the hugest moment in all of time and the smallest, quietest moment. That is deep. That is so deep. The 
quietest moment that I ever experienced was so profound. I was, and I might have shared this on the podcast before, but I don't give a shit. Look at me, footloose and fancy free. (laughs) Oh my God, what if? What an old person saying. Anyway, I was mountain climbing. I think it was like 1999, maybe. And we were on, we were climbing Mount Baker in Washington State. And our base camp was above the tree line. So it's just glaciers up there. So with no trees, there's really no wildlife uh, up there. And when there's no wind, there's no sound. It's, you know, assuming nobody around you is moving. And it was the first time I had experienced, the only time I've experienced perfect silence. Because even if you are in a room in the middle of nowhere, um, there is still a thing called room tone, which is um, just, I'm not going to get into the science of it, but um, I felt... I felt, when I experienced that perfect silence, I felt my body change. Not forever, but just temporarily. It, it I don't know, it's like something, uh, like something fell away that, that wasn't necessary. And I will never forget it. What did I just say? I think I forgot. Dumb. Dumb man. Dumb man with dumb joke. That was that was a mean DJ voice trying to sneak in using somebody else's voice. I won't have it. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Disordered uh, Dissection, and I'm just going to read uh, a couple of excerpts from this. She's uh, straight in her 30s and uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Um, been physically and emotionally abused and she writes narcissistic abuse victim syndrome is the name of my game the textbook male narc who was who I decided to marry Uh, daily emotional abuse and sadistic rage I didn't know which way was up because of the gaslighting worst 10 years of my life it doesn't stop though he is no longer around it doesn't stop though he is no longer around to abuse me, so I myself have taken over the abuse. Okay, I understand. I go over and over all of the horrible things that he did or I allowed him to do, all of the red flags painted white. It is a cut that won't heal because I think that I'm trying to remind myself about how bad it was so that I don't let it happen again. I also find that rumination is really kind of a backdoor way of obsessing about ourselves, really kind of the different side of the coin of grandiosity. Um, Any positive experiences with the abusers? I loved him and he convinced me that he was putting me down to better me. Everyone else saw his greatness, so I thought that I was making up the abuse in my head. I didn't know what emotional abuse looks like. It happened so gradually that I didn't recognize how bad it got until I was regularly dissociating, hitting myself, and making an active plan for suicide. Wow. Darkest thoughts. I fantasize about renting a motel room in the city 
that my ex-husband is a detective in and killing myself to have him have to work my case and see what pain he caused. I would never do this because he would never feel sad about it. He would use it as a sympathy play to get more pussy. My ex-wife killed herself. Fuck my pain away. Darkest Secrets I've been a funeral director and known of others engaging in necrophilia. There is a sick underground world in the L.A. funeral industry. Go cremation to lessen your stay in a mortuary, especially if you are a young white male. That is one of the heavier surveys uh, I have I have come across. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. that and that is a topic, uh, not necrophilia, but um, uh, spousal abuse that I do have plans to cover more. Uh, on the on the podcast I feel like it's definitely underrepresented you know we touch on it here and there in people's stories but um, that person's story it sounds like could be an, an entire podcast in itself uh, talking about that being falling under the spell of a brilliantly uh, manipulative uh, sadistic narcissist uh, that was the name of my first comedy CD. <laughs> uh, I just made myself laugh. This is an awful moment filled out by Crazy Rat Lady. She writes, Two years ago, my older brother died in a car accident. I was organizing his funeral together with his fiance. The undertaker asked us to bring over some clothes for my dead brother to wear in his casket. So we went into my brother's apartment and browsed through his enormous wardrobe. He was really into fashion and always looked stylish, so we picked out one of his nicest suits and dropped it off at the funeral house. A couple of hours later, the funeral guy calls me and tells me in a slightly panicked voice that the clothes are way too small and do not fit my brother's corpse at all, and they have to cut them so he will fit in, and he's asking for my permission to cut. My brother's fiance was standing next to me, and I said, yeah, just stuff him in it. As soon as I got off the phone, we erupted in hysterical laughter. I get it, man. I get it. That... um Thank God for humor in moments like that. Thank God. Some more time machines. If only to observe, I would jump five years to see if what I'm doing right now will amount to anything. You know what the reason I wanted to read that one is because even if you could, we never know the connection. We never know what the thing was that, that brought about where we are. We think we do. But it's, in my experience, I have never been able to predict where something is leading. And I could have never, looking back in hindsight, seen the things that had to happen in the light at the time that I see them on, see them in later. I don't know if that makes any sense. I think I confused myself. 
This person says, I go back to the 50s because I think it would be an awesome experience. Said the white person. (laughs) I will guarantee you that a person of color probably didn't write that one. Uh, I would go back to watch, uh, this is a different one, to watch the courtship between my mom and stepdad who've been married 29 years and have one of the healthiest marriages I've been able to observe. I'd love to see how that started and grew so that I could get confidence about my next relationship whenever and whatever that will be. Well, if they're alive, um, ask them. Tape it. Share it with us. Write a book about it. Make it into a movie. That uh, that would be a good thing to share with people. This person says, I would spy, and spies in quotes, on my ex-fiance's life to find out why she is who she is and was who she was during our relationship. Uh, it ended less than two months ago. was great until all of a sudden she went off the deep end and cheated on me and ended it. Uh, you know, there's a good possibility that she has a fear of intimacy. And as the wedding was getting closer, um, she started feeling suffocated and it probably had nothing to do with you. Um, and was just really how she was expressing her fear. Possibility. I don't know. I don't know her. But you should write a book about her. Get together with the person who's writing the thing about the other people. You combine it. You make a big book. You give it to the person who wants to go back into the 50s. You ask them to give it to I'm, I'm bailing on this bit. Uh, another one. Even thinking of an answer to this is exhausting. I can barely get to the grocery store. Uh, this person says, "I go to this. I'd go to the '60s and '70s and '80s and party." I don't get that one. As if uh, partying isn't available now. Oh, I guess because it would have a different feel to it. Well, I can tell you this much: uh, didn't party in the '60s, but I did in the '70s and '80s, and the weed was shit. So. If you're going to smoke weed, bring some weed from present day back there with you. This person says, I'd like to go back to the Victorian era and watch how Lewis Carroll moved through the world. I'd love to know how his voice sounded, how he held his body, and how he interacted with those around him. That is one of the most fascinating ones I've ever read. You know, one of the things I'm really proud about on the podcast is how bright so many of the listeners are, how how just um, knowledgeable and uh, insightful and eclectic. That, that to me is always, I always felt like when I was doing stand-up comedy, it was so hard to get a sense of any of those people in the audiences. And so I always felt like I had to kind of um, I don't know, pander, do kind of more lower common denominator uh, subject matter. And the nice thing about doing a podcast is there's not that pressure. And then when I read surveys like your guys, um, it's just so, I don't know, just... Makes me feel really good. 
This is an intense one. This person says, I hate admitting this, but I think I would use it to witness some horrific act of mass violence. The, oh no, did I lose the next part of it? Hold on, hold on. Oh, here it is, okay. Um, Armenians on a death march in the Turkish desert. The gas chambers at Auschwitz. Villagers being cut down with machetes during the Rwandan genocide. I spend so much of my time reading about the blackness of human history that I almost feel compelled to experience it in some way, as though absorbing some of that pain would give me a deeper understanding of the terror felt by the victims or an insight into the minds of perpetrators, although I doubt it would. Uh, it's a recurrent fantasy I've had since I started reading about the Holocaust when I was eight years old. I I I have to wonder, was that, were you, I, I have to assume you were instructed to read about the Holocaust when you were eight, that that wouldn't be something that, um, I've talked to people um, who have, in fact, I've I've had guests on the show who have said that uh, the way the Holocaust was presented to them when they were um, young children was really um, inappropriate in terms of, of, of how it was presented. I, and that makes sense to me because I understand that you would want to educate kids about the reality of the world, but um, it would seem that there's also a way to do it to educate rather than to, to traumatize. But um, um, I've got to imagine that a children's book about the Holocaust is probably the least successful of the books by Dr. Seuss. I could be wrong. I don't know what it would be called. The Who's, The Who's, Saw Warsaw? Oh, shut up, Paul. I, I have just... I can't believe I just made that joke. But I'm not erasing it because that is how my fucked up brain thinks sometimes. And I'm owning it. I'm owning it. This person says, I would go back and see what I could have done differently. I feel totally unjustified and crumbling like I am when so many people have had it harder than me. I just want to have a reason for feeling the way I do. Stop. Do not do that to yourself. Do not. It is the biggest waste of mental energy. I would go back and see if I was really as teased as I think I was in grade school. I would go back and confirm I was molested even earlier than I remember. Um, you know, if I wish for anything, it's that people would stop saying I shouldn't feel this way and then being themselves up for what they feel. This is uh, from the Shame and Secret Survey and this was filled out by Water Flowing Underground and they are non-binary uh, presenting as a woman. And I'm just going to read an excerpt. Um, Ever been physically or emotionally abused? 
Uh, yes to both. My mom used to spank me. Then when my dad left, she started full-on beating me. It wasn't frequent, not like every day, but I always took the brunt of the punishment to protect my little brother from it. I know she physically abused me until I was probably 13, but now I'm just realizing that it was physical abuse. Uh, I guess she means that it was physical abuse. I'm not really... I just thought all moms did this to their kids. I don't have a lot of vivid memories about it. I dissociated during most of it. I remember one instance when I was 11 or 10 years old. She held me down on my bed, spit on me, punched my stomach, slapped my face, pulled at my hair and screamed, you're nothing but chicken shit. I hate you. I hate you. Over and over again. She verbally abused me by screaming at me on a regular basis, telling me I'm not good enough. Uh, you know, stuff like that. The emotional neglect and abuse was crazy. Uh, manipulating me, lying to me, using me mainly for money, and taking all of her anger, sadness, and stress out on me. Here's why I wanted to read it. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Yes, of course, only with my mom. My mom is my friend. She's amazing. Now that I'm older, I put the past behind me, and I forgive her for how she treated me. She was abused and neglected as a child, and she also has mental illness. That I do not understand um, how I, I have to assume that your mother changed so significantly that you can feel safe around her um, today because I can't wrap my head around how anybody, once they realize that somebody is, is that abusive to them and refuses to change, how they could still be around that person. Um, darkest thoughts. Sometimes I think about how cool and exciting it would be to find a body, like a dead body in the woods or the forest or something. I don't want to kill anyone, but I think seeing a dead body in real life would be so absolutely cool. Also, being the first person to discover a body would be insanely cool. Another thing, I think I have an extreme connection to the deceased. It's weird to think about and even weirder to talk about. I'm afraid people think I'm just quote, crazy, or quote, weird. Uh, darkest Secrets. When I was like eight years old, I watched hentai, I think I'm pronouncing that right, pornography on my grandma's computer when I was at her house. I did this for a few years. I never masturbated or anything. I just looked at it. Never did clear the history on her computer either. Whoops. <laughs> oh, You can't make this shit up. You can't make it up. Thank you for sharing all of that stuff. And the the, the body in the wood thing, woods thing is uh, is fascinating to me. I've always had a fascination with um, dead bodies too, but never a like I want to actively see one. More kind of if you you know oh did you hear you know there's a scene down the block or whatever you know more kind of rubbernecking. Um, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by Anna Kay. And she writes, when I was in my 20s, my boyfriend and I left Pennsylvania and took jobs in Hawaii for a one-year stint. My boyfriend took up surfing. On a bright, sunny Wednesday in June, our final full day in Hawaii, we headed for the Pipeline, a famous surfing spot on the North Shore. Walking out of the beach, we passed a number of crosses and flowers indicating the people, mostly surfers, who have lost their lives at this dangerous surfing spot. By the way, I went there once and was not four feet into the area where Pipeline begins. 
and I saw a guy bleeding from head to toe waiting for an ambulance. Um, anyway, my boyfriend, uh, the waves were big that day, bigger than what my boyfriend usually surfed, but he wanted to make the most of his last day of surfing in Hawaii. He headed out into the surf, and I laid on a towel and fell asleep for about an hour. Uh, when I awoke, I sat up and scanned the horizon for my boyfriend. While looking for him, I saw something yellow in the ocean hitting a rock 20 yards from me. It looked a little like his surfboard. I got up to inspect and soon discovered that it was my boyfriend's surfboard, but it was half of the board. Immediately, my heart started to beat very hard. I began running, running up and down the beach, asking anyone with a board if they had seen my boyfriend and if they would please paddle out to see if he was out there in the surf. A few men complied with my request. I stood at the water's edge, bawling my eyes out, imagining the phone conversation later when I would call his parents and tell them their son died on his last day in Hawaii. The men did not find him. Fifteen minutes later, my boyfriend walks up to me onto the beach and asks why I'm acting like a lunatic. I hug and kiss him. I am so relieved, but he looks angry. He says that when, when a big wave came, he do dove down deep and the wave hit the board, snapping his board in half. He spent some time searching for the other half of his board, since surf shops can repair a break. But then a riptide pulled him about a mile down shore, after which time he swam to shore and walked back to me. He said he was mad because he loved this board. It was his very first, and he was looking forward to surfing the East Coast with it. I told him my story of becoming panicked after seeing half of his board crash against the rocks. His face brightened, and he said, Oh, so you have the other half of my board? I told him I didn't think to grab it, since I thought he was injured or dead. The ride back was silent, because I had failed to retrieve his board. I vacillated between wanting to shower him with kisses and wanting to choke him to death. Thank you for that. This is a shouldn't feel this way, filled out by she tried to make everyone happy. Um, no, I'm sorry. Her name is Pauletta. Uh, how would you like to be remembered? She tried to make everyone happy. How does writing that make you feel? Invisible. How would you use a time machine? I would have ran away after high school graduation. I should be grateful uh, that I have a home to live in and a husband with good health care from his job. Um, writing it out, unfortunately, I feel nothing. And... I think I'm abnormal. Uh, knowing other people feel the same uh, wouldn't make me feel better, but I'm sure there are some people somewhere, uh, but few in my situation. I don't think so. I don't, I don't think so. But that's just me. I think a lot of people feel invisible and numb. This is part of a shame and secret survey filled out by um, a woman who calls herself tired and confused and she's gay in her 20s and um, I just want to read what, what if anything do you wish for I wish my family would accept me for who I am I grew up in an extremely religious household when I told my dad I was gay he said he hopes I'm never proud of who I am I am a disgrace to the entire family I also wish I could feel my emotions. Sometimes I think I'm depressed, but other, to other times I think I'm just making it up, like my symptoms aren't bad enough. 
I'm functioning okay, so I must be fine. Is this normal? I absolutely hate it. Yes, it is absolutely normal for somebody who is depressed and who has lived in an emotionally invalidating environment that isn't safe. Uh, Have you shared these things with others? No, no one really cares and I don't have friends. It's just me and my cat. And well, she doesn't care either. Ha ha. How do you feel after writing this down? Scared. I've never realized just how alone I am. Um, anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Just keep going. Life will work out. It always seems to work out. Um, and I would add, find people who will be the family that loves you because your family doesn't know how. I'm sure they think that they're doing what's best for you by shaming you, but um, you're not alone. Not by any means. I read so many surveys that describe the situation. Maybe different wording, um, but... And it's sadly much too common. I would suggest going to the forum and... um, and posting about that and getting some love there because you will get some love there. This is a happy moment uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself, I procrastinated so long I forgot my clever name. And she writes, a few months ago when I was dealing with a medication change that impacted my sex drive, my boyfriend and I were trying to have sex. I started crying in frustration because my body would not cooperate. My boyfriend got out of bed and went into the bathroom. He came back with two of our Ninja Turtle Band-Aids, kissed my knee, and put one of them on. He then had me do the same for him. Even though my problem couldn't be fixed with a Band-Aid, he was trying to show me that it would get better. We put on a movie, and he held me. It seems really small, but at that moment, it felt so huge that he was seeing and accepting my pain and trying to show me that he was there for me. That is beautiful, and the person whose survey I just read, that is how your parents should have reacted to you coming out. Saying right now society is really hostile to you and some portion of it probably always will be, but it's going to get better. There's nothing I can do to fix it but I can hold you here and support you. That is what a fucking loving parent should do. I shouldn't say because I'm not a parent, but this is a shouldn't feel this way, filled out by Days of Wine and Roses. Uh, How would you like to be remembered? She writes, I'd like people to remember how kind, goofy, and funny I can be. I'm a good friend when I emerge from my introverted retreats. I fantasize that somebody would acknowledge the lifelong sadness and struggle that led to my end, but the trouble is I don't show it to others. How do you feel right in that? Weird, guilty for wanting or thinking that? That's the fucked up part of introversion. I crave understanding but can't open up to people about it, about the real me. Yep. Uh, how would you use a time machine? Oh, God, I would go back to at least watch parts of the 70s. might change my view on life. I would go to Woodstock and just people watch for days. I would, too. 
Uh, I'm supposed to feel regretful about not getting pregnant yet, but I don't. I feel relieved that I can drink. I'm supposed to feel hopeful about sobriety, but I don't. I feel underwhelmed with life minus booze. I'm supposed to feel disgusted about my alcoholism, but I don't most days. I feel like it's my identity. How does it feel writing that out? Good. I'm a closet alcoholic, too afraid of judgment from professionals. I've heard how they talk about addicts and clients. You know, I I don't know exactly what people, what you heard professionals talk about, but I can tell you this. The mental health community will talk differently about an untreated addict or alcoholic that doesn't think they need help or refuses help and the way they talk about a recovering addict or alcoholic who is into the solution for staying sober. Completely different conversations. So they're, they're, I don't know if that's, was it work here, but uh, I just wanted to, to put that out there lest somebody not go to therapy because they think they're going to be uh, judged for um, having an addiction. Uh, she would also like uh, episodes dealing with Asperger's. Uh, th- we did an episode with um, a listener named Louise. So um, Google that one. That's a good episode. And I also had a guest named John H. And uh, I think he uh, is definitely um, probably on the autism spectrum, and we talked about it a little bit. This This is a happy moment filled out by Emily. She writes, I want to share the happy feeling I have right at this moment. I'm grateful that I made the decision to go to therapy a year and a half ago and I'm starting to feel my depression lift. Grateful that I no longer wake up in the morning flooded by thoughts of how pathetic I am. Grateful that I feel optimistic and even excited for the future for the first time since I was 11 or 12. And grateful that because of the podcast, I know that I am not pathetic. I am just human, just like everyone else. And we are all in this together. Beautiful. Uh, she identifies as a, um, well, I'll just read this to you. Um, one request, I would love to hear an interview with a femme lesbian. This is purely selfish since I have struggled with femme invisibility myself. When other lesbians assume you are straight because you, quote, look straight. And also the topic of femmes who are attracted to femmes rather than butches. That's me, and it has been a very alienating experience for me at times. I feel like this is not an issue that has been addressed yet, and I would love to hear from someone else who has experienced it. Great topic. Um, we touched briefly on it in the episode with Dr. Lauren uh, Costine, C-O-S-T-I-N-E, and um, she uh, talks about her her dealing with that issue herself as as well um and particularly i think within uh, the lesbian community and that's just a great episode anyway it's about love addiction um particularly in the lesbian community and she is a uh, therapist uh, dr costine this was filled out by smile 
and this is this shouldn't feel this way. How'd you like to be remembered? Where'd she get the Hello Kitty coffin? Or she tried to do good in her community. She tried to empathize with her fellows despite wishing a giant fiery asteroid would take out the species most days. Okay, all days. She tried. How's it feel writing that? Super unoriginal. Someone I know had a Hello Kitty coffin. How would you use a time machine? I'd like to see the average day in the life of both of my parents in childhood and also a Bowie concert. I have to assume that it would be Ziggy Stardust era Bowie. And there is actually concert footage of that, his last performance. I think it's at the... Um, I think it's at... It's in, it's in England uh, somewhere, I think in London. And... Um, it's a great concert. It's a really great concert. I'm supposed to feel despair uh, to be suicidal, but I don't. I just feel like I can take or leave life and that that's not an unreasonable response to life. How does it make you feel writing it out? I make plans A, B, and C for the deed, but I'm still here, so maybe it's just comforting to have an escape plan. I like plans. You think you're abnormal? Nope. Uh, would knowing other people feel the same uh, make you feel better? I'm sure other people do. Is there an original feeling in the world? If the podcast has taught us nothing else, it's that you're probably not alone in your feelings. Thank you for that. This is filled out by Ella and... Um, I'm supposed to feel excited about my wedding, but I don't. I feel annoyed by it. This is particularly only about the wedding, not the marriage. I'm excited to get married. It is the wedding that annoys me because my mom has turned it into this big, stressful, annoying thing. I'm supposed to feel regretful about how much I slept around in high school, but I don't. I feel happy with my experiences. I'm supposed to feel excited about spending time with friends, but I feel burdened. I'm supposed to feel happy about my brothers having kids, but I feel jealousy. They are able to own houses and support families and build these awesome futures, and I barely make it by. I'm supposed to feel happy to have a full day of appointments uh, for work, but I don't. I feel irritable. All I want to do is lay in bed. I'm supposed to feel discomfort about being sad, but I don't. I feel comfortable. I think that's why so many of us like... The, thank you for sharing that, by the way. That was... Uh, uh, I don't know what the word is, but um, I felt yeah in that. And I think that's why so many of us like rainy days because it's 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 like the universe coming and wearing matching pajamas, <laughs> putting on matching pajamas for us. Like, oh, this is how you're feeling? Okay. Um. This one is a shame and secret survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself, Do I Really Have Problems? And she is straight in her 20s, uh, says that she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, I would beg to differ. She, have you ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Yes, and I reported it. Um, I don't think this is the one that she reported, though. 
I remember showering with my mom until I was 13 or so. I didn't want to, but she told me to. I haven't really processed it. My childhood is pretty fuzzy in general, and this is a memory that recently surfaced. It probably has something to do with my repressed sexuality, but I don't really know what to make of it. I was pressured to give a blowjob to a guy in his car in the middle of the night when I was 16. I was passive and didn't say no, so I don't think it's abuse, question mark. At 21, I was taken advantage of by a man who let me couch surf at his place. I reported him because I was almost blackout drunk and did not reciprocate with him at all. It took a lot of convincing from my friends to report him. Sometimes I wonder if I did the right thing because he didn't seem like a bad person. Does he really deserve a permanent sexual record? None of my sexual abuses, in the parentheses, if they count, bother me now except maybe the one with my mom. I just want to read this sentence back to you. Um, uh, I wonder if I did the right thing because he didn't seem like a bad person. He didn't do the right thing. He didn't do the right thing. And that's not... That's the issue, is that he didn't do the right thing. If he hadn't done that, you wouldn't even be thinking about that question. And does he deserve a permanent sexual record? That's his problem to figure out. Maybe he needs one to not do that again. And um, about the showering with the mom thing, I really encourage you to process that with somebody. I have some suggestions for uh, support groups. And if there is a uh, woman you want to talk to, I have a friend in the mental health, uh, with a mental health background, um, who has experienced similar things, and I'd be happy to put you in touch with her to talk more uh, about it. Thank you for uh, thank you for sharing that, and I'm so sorry that you experienced that. Darkest thoughts. I really enjoyed having bruises on my legs and body. I don't know why. Something about the contrast of my pale skin and how dark bruises look on me? Question mark. I feel like a freak because I have no idea what turns me on. I know I have a sex drive since I started exploring my body when I was young, except that lasted one shower. I felt deeply ashamed afterwards and never touched myself for the next decade. I pushed my sexuality out. I'm trying to take it back, but I have no idea how, and I never feel horny. Um, When I masturbate, not because I want to, but because I feel like I should since it's healthy, right? Question mark. Um, and maybe I can force my sex drive out? Question mark. I don't think of anything and it doesn't do much at all. I'm worried that no one will ever want to be with me because I'm functionally asexual, not, notwithstanding the fact I'm batshit insane in relationships. I think I feel a lot of anxiety towards sex and it manifests itself this way. I feel guilty a lot of times because I feel like I dramatize my problems. Uh, I still fail to believe my life is really fucked up. Writing it down here, it might seem like I have issues, but it's biased and one-dimensional it's a biased and one-dimensional description. I feel like I've caused a lot of the problems that I've experienced. I have this sick habit of 
romanticizing shitty things. Sometimes I view myself as this broken soul with so much emotional baggage who needs saving. I imagine a guy who will understand me fully and accept me and fix me. Those unrealistic expectations are part of why I'm an awful partner. I hate my victim complex. I know logically no sane person would want to deal with someone like me. Uh, if they were really in, invested in me, they probably have problems themselves for not knowing when to count their losses. But I can't get that through my thick skull. Sometimes I feel like I'm just an overgrown child. I probably am in a lot of ways, seeing as my mom literally treats me as a kid, congratulating me if I do something basic like wake up early or make food, which pisses me off so much, yet saying nothing about getting into a prestigious college, working at a startup, etc. I feel like my issues aren't real issues because I'm just someone who hasn't matured properly. But then again, maybe that's all mental, mental illnesses. You are an incest victim, survivor, whatever you want to call it. What your mom did is incest, and it is one of the deepest wounds you can inflict on a child. I, I can't overstate it. I can't overstate the ripples that go into other parts of your life, but with a lot of work, and a lot of help, you can heal. And there is nothing inherently wrong with you at all. But that stuff, the coping tools that helped you survive as a child, it sounds like they're starting to backfire on you as an adult. And that's what hap happens to those of us who are abused as kids. You know, I'm 50 something years old and I'm still learning how to not reach for one tool and instead reach for another tool that's a healthier way to deal with feeling stressed or overwhelmed or cornered or shameful or what you know whatever but um the things that you are experiencing the being sexually shut down um, that is all classic textbook ways of reacting to being not only sexually abused, but also experiencing incest. And it can often swing between that and being incredibly promiscuous, but especially in a committed relationship. Once it feels like, you know, things are kind of cemented and you're monogamous and that other person is dependent on you, that's usually when somebody's who has been abused or, uh, you know, um, whose trust was taken away by a caregiver or experienced some type of sexual violation. That's usually when the um, sex drive towards that person goes out the window. And a lot of people then will then go act out sexually outside of their uh, relationship or with pornography or, you know, whatever. This is our last survey. It's an awful moment, and it's filled out by I Want to Go Fast. And she writes, I discovered I had depression, then bipolar in my later college years. I used cutting as a coping mechanism, but I always did it in areas on my body that I could cover up easily, such as my ankles, stomach, etc. I had cut my upper thighs a lot and had done this mostly in the winter, knowing I wouldn't be showing that part of my leg. Well, of course, deep scars take time to heal. 
and they were still there in the summertime. I tried to hide it, wearing shorts over my bikini bottoms. Last summer, I went to Firefly, a pretty big music festival. It was hot, and we were camping for days on a dirt lot. Needless to say, I was pretty gross and sweaty. I had no choice. Short shorts, uh, short shorts is, 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 was? Oh, I guess she meant to type, it was, short shorts, it was. Luckily, there was a body paint stand where some talented artists were working. I paid a girl to paint my one leg where the scars were a bit worse where the scars were a bit worse in an attempt to cover them. I was so nervous because the artist would be right up close to my battle wounds. When she started to paint, she looked me in the eye, lifted up her skirt a bit, and said, Me too. But we are strong motherfucking women, and you can do this. I looked over, and on her upper thighs were scars, pretty obviously self-mutilation, self-mutilation scars. It took that to remember I am not alone and I don't have to be embarrassed as long as I am doing my best to heal. Thank you so much for that. That is, that is that's so inspiring. I mean, isn't that so much of the battle is how we just, how we heal with without shaming ourselves, you know? While certainly monitoring ourselves and being honest with ourselves but not shaming ourselves that is that just seems to be so hard so hard but thank you thank you for that thank you guys for all your surveys thank you for all the support whatever whatever you do for the podcast even if it's just listen and tell somebody else about it or listen and it makes your day a little better even if you do nothing Nah, fuck you guys that do nothing. Fuck you guys. This is taking a terrible turn. Um, I am so grateful to be able to do this as my job and I love getting up in the morning because I get to do this. I get to do this, and a lot of you like it. And that's, it's so cool. I never thought that I could feel this deeply about work. I just never imagined. There's so much to my life that I never imagined um, could be so beautiful. You know, I forget that my crystal ball is broken. And every time I go back to it to try to predict what the future is going to be and then base how I'm feeling that day on what I see in my broken crystal ball, every time I do that, I'm wrong. And I hope if you're listening today, tonight, whatever, you heard this, it it helps you quiet that mean part of your brain that tells you you shouldn't feel this way. 
you're not handling your wound right, your wound isn't valid, you're lazy, you're whatever that broken record is, just tell it to shut the fuck up and do something nice for yourself. Take a nap. Kiss your pillow. Take a nap and kiss your pillow. And and <laughs> say so you and I are going to make some sweet, sweet nap love and fuck anybody that judges me. This is getting really weird. And just remember that you're you're not alone. You're so not alone. And I'll try to I'll try to remind myself of that when I'm beating the fuck out of myself for making a mistake that nobody will probably even remember 30 seconds afterwards. Anyway, thank you for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely.